Coming up next, the bookening reads East of Eden. Welcome to The Bookening. This is our third in the series on East of Eden. My name is Nathan Alberson. I'm here with Pastor Jake Menzel. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mr. Brandon Chastain. Hey. That's, see, that's how it's done. Um, we're here to talk about East of Eden in our spoiler-filled episode today. Uh. So Cyrus Trask, I didn't quite know reading the book this time what to make of this guy. First he seems like a redneck monster, but then somehow he tricks the entire U.S. government <laughs> yeah, honoring him as a great man. Did you guys buy this character or understand this character? Could you think of anybody like this? I, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I know I know this man. I, I know him very well. I could give a name to him. I have a... I mean, I don't want to say too much, but I have a friend who I don't think would describe himself as coming from anything like high class, upper class. I think he would describe himself as coming from just normal middle, lower middle class background. His dad uh, built himself up, assigned himself the title of black belt in a couple of different martial arts, taught himself started an academy and read a bunch of Eastern literature and proclaimed himself an expert on Eastern philosophy and became a visiting professor at two different universities. Just purely through bravado. Yeah. Are you serious? Wow. Absolutely. And he was just a ordinary hickish sort of guy, but he, through his bravado, through his, you know, his his confidence, and and it, it was like reading this friend's story, the way that he sort of slowly brought his wife in and then his sons and just started building the stories about himself and about him finishing runner-up in a, some kind of national c- competition. I can't remember all the stories, but I lived with those stories from my friend. Like I, That was just the truth of who his dad was. And then just a couple of years ago, he broke down and admitted that was all a lie. He made it all up, all of it. None of it was ever true. Huh. He taught him he just bought books and taught himself stuff and he ended up training and and he aspired for his sons to be martial artists and really pressured them into it and to be great and uh one of them was really good and he ended up walking away from it i mean it's just like it's the trask family that's insane (laughs) it's it's it is cyrus trask Mm -hmm. and and it's two boys and it's Mm -hmm. and it is Adam and mm. Charles. Well, there you go. Yeah, so so okay. So, yeah, Cyrus is absolutely – I, 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 I know Cyrus that. Trask. I, I know him personally. I could tell you his name. Mm. In a second, I'll say his name just for fun. We can delete it. No, I don't think Cyrus exists. <laughs> I think it's very unrealistic. <laughs> I should have let you say that before yeah. I <laughs> – You're an idiot, Brandon. <laughs> he was uh, – he fits in with his. He seems larger than life mm-hmm. in in a way that is a weird foil to Sam Hamilton. He's able to charm all these generals and become this very wealthy member of society. So much so that the vice president comes to his funeral, right? And um, he's a wheeler and dealer, and and is able to charm and to deceive 
And so a lot of these early themes of deception and the charm that you can have and use to have power over others comes out through Cyrus. And um, it's interesting that he has a false leg. Mm-hmm. So, uh, There's that moment uh, fairly early on where uh, Steinbeck's talking about how uh, every father falls in the eyes of his mm-hmm. kids one way or another. The gods fall, you know, and uh, Adam comes to realize that uh, Cyrus isn't larger than life. Sam Hamilton is larger than life. Cyrus isn't larger than life. He's yeah. a very small and concentrated little man, as yeah. I think how he puts it, or something like that. And he has this obsessive, that obsessive uh, goal. He's a very uh, small and concentrated man wearing a great big That's right. yeah. hat or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what, he, what, what it was. But no one else can pick up on this, and he becomes... He'd Charles can't pick up on it, but Charles isn't sophisticated the way that Adam is. Yeah. That's one of the interesting things about Adam. I don't know if we want to get into this, but Charles is simple and complicated because he understands his own evil. Aaron is simple, and you see, I don't, I quite, I haven't quite wrapped my mind around it yet. But Adam, Adam sees things that Aaron could never see. From an early age, but yet Adam and Aaron are both the same in that when they decide to project, whether onto Alice or onto Cyrus or onto Kathy, in Adam's case, or in onto Abra, Aaron's case, onto Abra, then the onto church. the church, then onto Stanford, they're able to project all the goodness that they want it to be into it. They just become completely blind. Yeah, I was going to say that it's interesting here where they're talking about the two sons and the way that they grew up with one another, Charles and Adam. Mm-hmm. Charles has said he had actual affection for his brother, mm-hmm. but Adam had no ability to have affection. He just felt that Charles was useful, like a little diamond or something that a woman has, huh. right? Because he could protect him. And then it's all Charles is very. Like, there's no depth to Charles. He's right. very practical and straightforward. He knows himself. He knows his own evil, but Adam is withdrawn into himself so much that it, I think he says that he's looking at people through the tunnels of his eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah um, that's right. And so at, I think Adam's always creating the world how he wants it to look and appear. Yeah. And so th- where this hurts him the most is when he gets involved with Kathy. Right. And Kathy's just, his Eve. Yeah. And he just makes her up and she's telling him, yep. I don't want to do this. <laughs> don't yeah. try and stop me. I'm going to leave. And he's so blinded by the creation that he's devised in his own head and you get an early picture of his uh, his obsession with creating these worlds and lo- reading into things when he has that weird moment with alice trask yeah where he kept watching her like mm-hmm. he became a peeping tom for a- a- looking alice. for her her smile and yeah. then he had to pay for his pleasures with little gifts and little trinkets the thing comes back to she thinks that charles is doing it yeah and how mm-hmm. sweet he is you, you yeah, just have just, to know him. It's a yeah. nice you just little have to know. soap opera Lifetime Channel moment. That, yeah, yeah, it's a very hallmark. That that sort of, I don't know, I think it was at home at my parents' house or in-law's house for the holidays and watched that exact moment play out on the Hallmark Channel maybe three times. Yeah. <laughs> Usually a dude that does something for a chick that he loves He's and then loves she subscribes it, it to her brood of a boyfriend. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. But hey, it still works. I, I, <laughs> yep. I got a little misty-eyed, perhaps, my yeah. uh, when it happened in this book. Uh, what's the deal with – you guys keep referring to Charles knowing himself. I guess you're referring to the letters that he writes, which well, surprised I, me. I, I was more thinking – yeah, so Steinbeck has that moment where he says some people are able to, to talk and understand and think about themselves, and some people – 
people who can't do that usually have to write. Mm-hmm. And so Charles comes to understand himself as he writes his letters to Adam. But I was more thinking there's a sense in which Charles knows himself and is in tune with the darkness mm-hmm. inside of himself, the evil inside of himself, which is or which becomes clear when we see he's able to recognize who Kathy is and mm-hmm. see through Kathy. And Kathy's afraid of him because Kathy knows that Charles knows who she is. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's Charles he understands Kathy. There's Samuel. He understands Kathy. And what gives them all the ability to understand Kathy is they're both in touch with their evil. Charles is bad. Samuel has has it in him deep down. And Well, what you see is uh, two sets of characters. One type really value cleverness and yeah. this sort of worldly knowledge of the self that has purely to do with the wickedness they can do mm-hmm. versus the other set, which are these more philosophizing poetic types. And so like in the Hamilton family, it's Will versus Tom here. It's uh, Charles versus Adam, or um, I guess to some extent, would it be Adam's mother versus Charles mother? Because they have different mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? His, his mother's the theosophist who has these is paranoid that her husband's going to die. And then when he doesn't, she says that the, bad dreams that she had were enough for God to take vengeance on her. And so she kills herself. And um, so she lives in this fantasy completely yeah. separate from reality. And so, so Adam does to an extent as well. Yep. And, but I think you're right. Samuel was kind of a gap between the two. Yeah. This sort him. of like, really you could think of them as photo negatives, mm-hmm. right? So in the, in the Hamilton family, the favorites, as Nathan pointed out earlier, are the ones that get ruined in, in the Trask family. It's those who aren't favorite that get ruined in yeah. in the uh, Trask family. It's the practical ones that survive and thrive in to a certain extent. In the Hamilton family, it's the practical ones that are sort of on the outskirts. And yeah, outsiders. Who is Adam Trask? <laughs> who is he? Yeah. Well, he's the. Uh, here's the thing: is in that movie wanted to make this a story about Aaron and Cal. This is really a story about Adam Trask. He, this, this is his story. Yeah, he He's, is the central protagonist. Yeah. Um, so you watch his development from his birth to, well, yeah, his death. It's his, yeah, it's it's his story. Yeah, it's birth to death. It's yeah. his story and yeah. starts with his dad and ends with him giving a blessing to his remaining son. Yeah. And he goes from being an able figure to being an Adam figure. Yeah. At least he wasn't, you know, given the name Adam because that would be really heavy-handed. <laughs> that would yeah, be, that a, little, would be yeah. a little on the nose, well, maybe. Right. Frederick <laughs> never did anything that was on the nose in this book. <laughs> no. What did you guys think of all the heavy-handedness with the biblical overtones and A's stuff? And A's and C's. A's and C's. I didn't mind it. I liked it yeah. better when I was, you know, 17 and I read the book the first time. But I, I thought that if... I didn't mind it. I think the storytelling aspect saves it because mm-hmm. if it had just been... If you were supposed to believe it as absolutely true, you even get the sense that he could have just made the names up for all we know, which is telling you a story about people he knew. Right. But the names do become very important with Aaron and Cal. Yeah, you got that prophetic scene in the naming of them yeah. where and Aaron doesn't make it to the promised land. Yeah. And you get the sense that, I mean, Steinbeck is, through Samuel, says that names are important. They decide, they can decide a man. They can, mm-hmm. name, they can um, set his path. And so, yeah, he grows into being Adam or mm-hmm. falls into being Adam, however you want to see it. But did you guys, uh, did you like Adam Trask? 
might sound like a stupid question. Maybe it is. I liked him in the second half of the book. Once he was an old, older man, I felt affection for yeah, him I the way that his sons him. did. Yeah. Those scenes with Cal, man, were so. Yeah, and Adam does try. I mean, he's in a certain sense he's a fool, like Aaron turns out to be. He creates these worlds. He creates Kathy, but unlike Aaron, he's willing to be snapped out of it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't kill himself. He doesn't let it destroy him. And when good men come to him, better men, like Lee or Samuel, to give him counsel, he listens. And I think there is something sweet about that, especially in the second half of the novel where he is trying and he's just, he fails his sons, he fails his finances. You know, the man just can't do anything right. And yet Lee um, says that he might be the best man he's ever known. Right. I think that's interesting because I do, I think Steinbeck maybe almost pulls that off. I feel like if I was in the situation, I might be someone that loved Adam Trask just the same way that, that all did. these more vibrant characters do. You know, as a reader, it's easy to, it's easy, much easier for me to love Lee or to love Abra and Cal or, you know, mm-hmm. um, or Sam Hamilton, but they all love Adam. And Adam I think, ne- sort of never loses that able touch of people just like him. Mm-hmm. And, the same way people just like Aaron. Yeah. The, and, it, and part of it really is that sort of he has a sense of innocence about him and a sweetness that's kind of untouchable. And part of that's the flip side of that is the worlds that he creates around him. Mm-hmm. Which are incredibly destructive. I yeah, mean, these fantasies that he builds up. The fact that he's so involved in the war effort and his, what his idea of the war effort is that he can't understand. He doesn't even he doesn't even have a clue what Cal is doing and Cal's present for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just doesn't get it. Yeah. And um, go ahead. That's sickening. But one thing to remember in that scene is um, what Cal did amounted to war profiteering. It was bad. I mean, yeah. And if you read did, a little it, bit more it, about it, it, you have to remember that Adam, a part of the thing that caused Adam and Charles to fight was Charles accusing his father of stealing yeah. from the war department. Right. And so this is going to be kind of a shock to Adam. And um, here his son is doing exactly what his father did, bringing the prophets to him again to live on this war profiteering. And so there's a lot behind that that you can't forget in his response and reaction to Cal. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult scene because you see it coming from the second that Adam – I mean, I think you're supposed to – you're an idiot if you don't think, Mm -hmm. oh, boy, here comes the sacrifice that is not going to be honored. And so you're just in knots or I was, mm-hmm. you know, just like it's one of those you just see the trains going at each other and you just know. And the only the only question is how bad the fallout's going to be. There's no question of what's going to happen. But the first time I did think it was a little weird. I had to think about it to remember why Adam was so dismissive, if not outright hostile to the gift. Um, and, you know, he was tender to Cal mm-hmm. in ways that he never got to be tender to Aaron because Aaron that was just following the scene where Aaron didn't tell him that he had passed his exams, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aaron was disp- Well, the thing is, when Cal understood who his mother was, that created sympathy and pity for Adam, and he just loved him all the more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, those were just... the That whole process of Cal, of being introduced to Cal, coming to understand what makes him tick and see his love and affection and his longing for his father's affection develop. 
It's so painful. It's so, so gut-wrenching. And one of the most, yeah. my, maybe my favorite scene in the, well, my favorite scene is probably the last one, but one of, one of the scenes that always stands out to me is the scene where Adam Which, gets Cal from the jail. Yeah, yeah. And you just have that moment that. I trust you, son. One of those things that oh, literature man. gives you yeah. is moments that you wish you could have in your own life. That's right. Not to get too autobiographical or mm-hmm. anything, but doesn't everybody wish they could have that conversation oh, with man. their father and just you bring up, up all the You picked up from jail and you're afraid and you think the cuff is coming. and Instead he takes you home and. And, yeah. and he has his first real bonding experience with his dad instead. And then he and tells his, his dad that he he slips up and says, you know, makes reference to Kathy and it's okay. And yeah, it's another thing to bond over. And the, yeah, the the sweetness comes when he says, um, shouldn't you be at school? And he says, no, I'd rather be here with yeah. you. So. <laughs> and, then, and he says, oh, go make that pot of coffee. Yeah, yeah I mean, poor Cal. He's just so nakedly needy. Uh, he's that, raw. He's so raw. He's always, you know, um, there's that scene where he's pray, laying in bed praying that people would like him, that he wouldn't be, yeah. you know. Praying, dear God, help me not to be a bad man or right. whatever. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be bad. I don't want to be but bad. But that's something that he has that Aaron doesn't. And I don't know if he gets which lineage that comes from. Does it come from Adam or does it come from the Charles lineage? His ability to be raw and naked because I don't think Aaron can. Aaron is always going to protect himself behind these. Everything uh, self-protection with Aaron. The, the the dirty secret of Aaron is that nothing's actually pure and good with him. I don't think everything's all self-protective. Mm-hmm. Well, I have absolutely no sympathy for Aaron. I take that back. There's one scene where I teared up for Aaron a little bit, which is when he's under the willow with Abra and she says like, I'll be your mother. Yeah. And then he just bursts into tears and doesn't even understand. Yeah. And of course you got to feel bad for a kid there, but then he doesn't even understand what is going on in that moment. She's like, we can play, house. we can play house. You can call me wife. And she grabs his hand and puts it in her lap. And he says, well, can I call you mother instead? And he's down and starts <laughs> right. crying. Creepy. He's like, <laughs> Um, and yet she stays I was, with him I was for surprised that she played along. I, I yeah. expected her to be weirded out a little bit, but she was happy to play. Well, you get the sense that the story. Yeah, she was forced to grow up mm-hmm. and be older than she was because of a bad family. Yeah, her parents don't care about her. Besides, yeah. that's just a pretty thing to a lifestyle accessory. I really wanted a son, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey. This is my daughter, Abra, that I didn't want. Yeah. Hey, yeah. let me recite some poetry about her everywhere yeah. I go, about how I didn't want her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't I don't know. Did you guys, does anybody want to mount a defensive Aaron, or is he just a Well, I think idiot. that Aaron is exactly what, well, I don't know if he is what Adam would have become, actually. I don't know if he's more like Kathy or more like Aaron. And Kathy puts up these protections around herself, That's too. Right. So you, it was you who made, you should make your point. What what was the point I made about Kathy having the complete inability to yeah, see yeah, good? Yeah, and, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Kathy sees evil everywhere. Yeah. She can't see good anywhere, and she can't trust that good exists. And Aaron, he does see evil, but it's dirty. He he just wants to see good everywhere, so he decides he's going to see good everywhere, yeah. and he's going to project good into the things he wants to be good. Well, you know what's interesting about that? If I can jump in, is they're actually both of them, mother and son, destroyed by definitively realizing that the thing, the moment that Aaron dies is the moment that he realizes there is evil. I come from evil. The moment yeah. that Kathy decides to kill herself is when it just finally clicks in her brain. There's something I never got, which is good. 
There's mm. something that I missed. And um, it's a moment where you feel sorry for Kathy, or I did at least, you know, where she's just like, what did I miss? And then she kills herself. Yeah. Um, well, it's because she hears it twice. She hears it from Adam when Adam Adam's has his first, victory yeah. over her. Mm-hmm. He says, do you ever feel that there is this thing that you, like a note you can't hear or a color you can't see? And then Cal in that very, Cal's like awesome you said, raw with moment with her, yeah. he asks, you know, just tell me, do you ever get this too? And that's just, that's a heartbreaking moment with Cal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, good grief. Here he is, his mother. He could do anything. He could hate her, spit fire at her, and instead he just is trying to understand mm-hmm. this. And also gain victory over her, which he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they he both does. end up they feeling both, okay. They both look the devil in the face, and and having looked the devil in the face can say, you know, I don't have to be you, yeah. mm-hmm. and I don't have to be ruled by you. Yeah. And that's what Aaron couldn't do. You know, and he's a fool. I mean, he's just well. I, you do. I think the place where I want to have sympathy for Aaron is I do. I do think the door is left open to ask the question if Aaron would have if things would have been different for Aaron if the truth had been told earlier, like, earlier in life, and he had grown up instead of being allowed to treasure mm-hmm. from an early age the saintly picture right. of his mother that he built up and you know went to in his dreams if he had a he had reality. There's no question, I think, that if Aaron had had a father that actually took a hand... I mean, I think Lee did a good job with the boys the best that he could. But, you know, there's a certain level of... There's some line that Lee wouldn't cross or couldn't cross. Well, yeah, Lee was utterly committed to the truth. So there's the scene where he's telling about what happened to his mother and father. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And then he says, you know, his father would never tell him the story another way because... The truth may be painful, but at least the truth is not destructive in the way a lie is. Mm-hmm. And you see that, and you see it with Adam. So what actually what Aaron is lacking is he had no Samuel to come and punch him, mm-hmm. right? Lee tried, but Lee couldn't quite live up. So right, and his father was guilty of the same sin, just created the Aaron that he wanted, and I mean nobody really got the way. chance, right? He yeah. went off and went to war and died. And it is a despicable but, thing that Cal does in his essentially murdering Aaron. I mean. Yeah, but he I'm was also just angry. I'm with Lee though when Lee gets the letter and says God how I hate a coward and I think Lee's talking about himself yeah. but he's I think he's also talking about Aaron mm-hmm. uh, and most of the commentaries and notes that I read assumed that he was just talking about Aaron I thought he was probably talking about both of them when I, I read I thought he was talking about both of them and yeah, first but, himself but Yeah first he's definitely talking about himself cuz he says you know I won't go get it I'm not going to answer the door oh hell with it you know there's I'll I'll go get the advertisement um, but he then knows what it is, and then it's sitting there, and then he opens it, and then he's thinking about throwing it away even mm-hmm. and not letting Adam read it. And then he says, I, I can't make that decision. But then as he's walking in with it, I think with the tea or whatever it is, you know, he says, oh, God, how I hate a coward. And that's kind of how I, I don't want to be too hard on Aaron. I understand what created Aaron, but the fact that he's going to throw away Abra, who's clearly awesome, yeah. is just like, dude. He's a moron. You're a moron. You've got this wonderful thing. You've got a chance for stuff that you're... But, well, no, he never... What you end up finding out is he never actually had a chance because she's wonderful enough to know that he's not the kind of man that she needs. Yeah. I don't know why I... I mean, I feel... I'm willing to be sympathetic to Adam. I don't know what it is. Maybe maybe there's just the cow in me that finds Aaron annoying. But, (laughs) you know... um, And maybe that's good. I think maybe that's... Maybe it's a useful 
thing in the writing of the book for Steinbeck to allow me to feel the same way that Cal well, does. Well, I've got a thought that might take us down a rabbit trail that I've been wanting to insert for a while now. And I, there's a, the narcissism of Adam and the Trask family. You, you see this sort of running commentary about people only talking and thinking about themselves. And I think that there's a, an I, idea, at least in Steinbeck's mind, that Adam actually had it in his power to save and return the favor for some of the Hamiltons. Like, mm-hmm. I, think, I think Adam could have saved Tom. I think if Adam had given Tom the ranch to farm the way that Tom explicitly asked him to multiple times, or not Tom, Samuel explicitly asked him to multiple times, that it might have been a saving grace for Tom, I think. Adam ends up going and buying out Bessie's house so that she can go to her destruction. Adam sort of unwittingly, because he's only thinking about himself, having talked to Will about it, having thought, you know, having heard Will's wisdom about it, you know, sort of unwittingly sends Bessie and Tom both to their destruction. Right. There's a sweetness to Adam because he does do the right thing when push comes to shove, but push always has to come to shove with that guy he is a passive man that just kind of lets things happen and he lets things happen to his sons which is a pretty big sin and he lets things happen to the people that he should be responsible he is the opposite of sam hamilton in that sense sam hamilton takes responsibility for everybody yeah i guess i just jumped us right back to adam and sam but in my mind it was connecting to our conversation about aaron well, because Aaron, Aaron, that sin of his father's lives in Aaron and destroys Aaron. Yeah. Aaron's a complete narcissist. The the thing about Aaron is that for whatever reason, Aaron doesn't have the power to destroy people around him mm-hmm. the way that Adam does. Maybe just because he hadn't accumulated the power that comes with wealth and living and age and time. I think Aaron probably would have been a very destructive man in his own way if he remained unchanged and got married to Abra and had well, kids. And Kathy says as much when she tells Cal, oh, it's good he's considering becoming a pastor because there's no more damage you can do than in the church, right? Here in the whorehouse, I'm limited. But if he becomes, if he goes and becomes an Episcopal priest or something, then there will be all sorts of power to do all sorts of wickedness. And maybe part of the reason that Kathy actually chooses... Aaron is be- is not simply because she wants to, she wants that cherubic son. She wants the good son. She wants the son that she can't understand. But maybe there's actually a narcissism and something that she recognizes. Maybe maybe Cal is actually beyond her because Cal is in the process of being redeemed. Whereas she chooses to watch Aaron and to leave her inheritance to Aaron. Because Aaron's just as irredeemable as she is. Yeah, yeah, and she sees that. Yeah, she's. There's no question she's the one that's going and visiting the church, right? No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I didn't think so. Spying on her yeah, son. The one that, what was his name? The pastor sees her in the back and he keeps yeah. wanting to go and talk to her. Yeah. And maybe it'll lead to confession or something. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. yeah, that seemed was kind of gay, like literally. Like, Oh, I think that that I think was, it was wasn't to be, that right? purposeful. Yeah, there was the sexual be. tension in those with that. Well, you got to wonder about Aaron. He was grooming Aaron yeah. is the sense I got. That's, the, that's yeah, it's sort of an unspoken thing. But then there's also a sense that, well, maybe you're reading too much into it. I couldn't quite tell. Which is always. It was it was the appropriate thing, I think, especially for a guy that is emasculated as Aaron who's willing to throw Abra away, which is, the, is Aaron's sin that makes me think he's just 
makes me not like him. I wanted to go back. I kept wanting to go back and try to piece together if Kate talks about, I think she, at one point she throws a picture of an, of a priest on a table or a, I didn't get the implication that that priest was. Yeah, uh, I didn't think it was, but I just wanted to be sure that it wasn't. That one, I don't know. While we're talking about um, things, whether or not are true, um, is Steinbeck suggesting that Aaron and Cal could have different fathers when he keeps talking about the two different eggs? He's always he's always yeah. suggested that's always out there. Yeah. I mean, I think he's playing with the idea that. Cal is of the lineage of Charles and Aaron. Aaron is the, yeah, you actually assumed it earlier in our conversation. Yeah. I, I don't know that you can assume it, but it's always sort of there as a question. I mean, yeah. my assumption was that they were both actually Charles' kids, and that that's what you want to assume. But I think that it could be it could be either that the question the, is supposed. Doesn't to Doesn't Kathy there. basically say when Adam confronts her in the whorehouse that he couldn't come on? Perform. We didn't we didn't even hardly do anything. How, yeah. how do you think I got pregnant? Like she, she basically makes it sound like if Adam had been thinking at all, he would have figured out that it was Charles because and that was also well, her attempt to stab at him. But yeah, right. Uh, you'd say I mean, Adam somehow thinks they're like, his sons. Likely, so, yeah. he's not troubled. Yeah, yeah. but right. Adam is really yeah. good and adept at building a world that deciding that I could totally buy, given who Adam Trask is, him having very limited sexual or very impotent sexual congress with Kathy and then <laughs> deciding that, oh yeah, I fathered those kids. Cause that's just, that's just, <laughs> that's just who he is. That's just who he is. He's that much of an idiot in some <laughs> ways, unfortunately for him and for his sons. Is there any question? I think Steinbeck doesn't like Aaron. You guys think? No, I think the, I think one of the things that's interesting about this novel is that Steinbeck in a novel about not playing favorites, Steinbeck likes certain characters and, it's pretty obvious that Steinbeck likes Lee, that Steinbeck likes Samuel, that Steinbeck likes Cal. He likes Adam. He likes Adam. And he gives those guys a lot of fun, interesting things to do. He gives them all of his quote-unquote good dialogue. and They get to spout off his wisdom about character and writing right. and, and stories and storytelling. Yeah. I've never minded that when an author has when an author plays favorites. Well, I think it's inevitable. Right. Yeah. Austin Austin played favorites. Oh, absolutely. You could tell so. she hated Mrs. Bennett and had and sympathy it, for Mr. Bennett and perhaps undeservingly in both cases, as we discussed. And it tells you that the, the author's creating a world and he's narrating this world. Obviously, there's going to be characters he's drawn to and repulsed by. And he'll spend a lot of time talking even about the characters he's repulsed by. I mean, Kathy mm-hmm. gets a lot of this novel. A lot but, of exposition. Yeah. I wonder if he doesn't actually just like Kathy, though. In some sense. I think he finds... Finds her interesting weirdly, and pitiable. Some weird sympathy with her mm-hmm. at the end, but he gives her the whole Alice scene where she's imagining that she's shrinking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know. I don't know what I think of that. I don't well, know. Well, let's, let's uh, hold off on Kathy for another minute here. Okay. Let's cover the three. So we've got three major characters besides the Trasks. We've got Abra, Lee, and uh, Kathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Abra. I yeah, you've... You've made that clear. I was going to say, if any young lady out there is a lot like Abra. If any lady has a full womanly figure. And, <laughs> right, Nathan uh, Alverson. Wisdom beyond her years. Um, well, I think Abra redeems Steinbeck from the charge of having no clue what to do with his women. Like, yeah. all the other women in the book are either a monster or flat, a type. Two-dimensional. Two, two Except Olive, probably. Yeah, true. I mean, he... We don't get enough of Olive, though, except for the airplane story to really... 
to really know much about. I mean, we know Desi, yeah. we know these characters, but in terms of the people we actually spend time Desi with, Desi is just the though. You could say if it wasn't for Abra, you could say, well, Desi is just he took a, a some of Sam's fairy dust and sprinkled it on a woman and gave her a dress shop instead of a blacksmith shop. Right, she's just Sam in a wig, basically. Yeah, Sam in a wig. Liza and Alice and uh, Mrs. Trask, who doesn't have a first name, does she? No, she doesn't. She's Mrs. Trask. Are all very relatively two-dimensional Relatively two-dimensional, and in some sense. And and then Kathy is straight up two-dimensional. Right, and explicitly so. So you've got Abra, who I think you could accuse maybe of being two-dimensional and that she's just like the supportive... She could be... I'm guessing, I haven't read any feminist theory papers about this, I'm guessing they could probably be pretty nasty about Abra and say she's just another wish fulfillment, you know, character. But I thought there was enough to her, and I thought I thought there were some very lovable qualities. I liked how she attached herself to the whole Trask family. Yeah. I found her... I, like, I, I liked her introduction. I liked how she feigned shyness inside. She went outside and she established herself, and then... She got owned by Cal and couldn't figure out what to do. And then yeah. she, you, you sort of, you you get to see her mature mm-hmm. and come to know herself. And yeah, she hangs out. She sort of, you know, becomes an attachment to the Trask family. She develops that really sweet relationship with Lee that mm-hmm. gives us that great scene towards the end. Mm-hmm. My second yeah. favorite scene probably, actually. Where Lee asks for her to come and visit or... When Lee says he wishes... When Lee says, I I wish... I don't remember whether he first says, I wish you were my daughter, or whether she first says, I wish you were my daughter. He says it first. And then then he says, why? And she says, because I love you. And uh, Nathan tears up. (laughs) 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 It's really sweet. Um, She says, I love you too. And then he goes, he runs out of the room, and he goes and gets a present for her well and it says like she hugged him and kissed him on the cheek and it was something that had never happened to him in yeah. his entire life which is just yeah. like really it's nice and he calls her darling in that moment and he says i've never called any i've never said that word or never called anybody that in my whole mm-hmm. life and you don't get uh it's really well written in the sense that it's just not overly sentimental it's i felt like it was just the right touch that you you could buy into it yeah it's more if of they that. tried to make the movie version of it, it the music would swell. No, it would be bad. You want it's almost that it's that Hemingway. I think we might be proud of that scene. All the all the excess fat is cut, and he, it's just the just stark. Yeah. It's just the they say what they need to say. You know, it reminds me of a Hemingway story or something. That's the only thing in the entire book that reminds that's probably does that. But yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes. So just the fact that Abra is in a sense Lee's reward for the end of his life of service is a wonderful thing about her character because i do love lee as well so i don't know maybe abra is a little bit of a fantasy figure maybe i'm buying into the fantasy of abra and that's I don't why think i she like is. her but i think i feel like i've known women like and i think that. she she fits right in with the themes of the novel too she has a father and mother who have failed her mm-hmm. and so she but instead of building some sort of fantasy or becoming bitter and restless i think restlessness is a big theme with the Cain lineage in mm-hmm. this Mm-hmm. She instead she goes and she finds a home that she can be helpful in and and she love. finds a a man that she understands and that can understand her and she can see herself in and yeah. and you know they it's a good set it's a setup for a good marriage they can process life together and push each other yeah. in the right direction and she can be the kind of rock that Cal needs 
Yeah, because she will and, have loyalty. Yeah, she and she and she'll understand him. She'll understand. You know, she can be the something of a Lee or a or of a Samuel, in a, in a sense. You know, she has those moments where she's like, "No, it doesn't have to be that way." In the same way that Lee has his moments of "Stop it! Stop yeah. it! Stop mm-hmm. it!" Yeah, I mean, she's certainly, I think, what tips Cal in the right direction at the end. If it wasn't for her, I don't maybe see him going back to seek his father's blessing as good as as much as Lee's done and as much as everyone's done to put him in a position where he can be redeemed. Being inspired by the love of a good woman never hurts. (laughs) I've noticed in life. When I've seen other other people. (laughs) (laughs) At least in Hollywood. Well, yeah, in Hollywood. But I'd say in real life. How many people do you know that have done the right thing for the wrong reason? The wrong reason being a pretty head. And then they end up, they keep doing the right thing. Some of them don't, but. Yeah, it's true. Uh, What about Lee? Any thoughts about Lee? Lee is maybe one of my favorite characters in the book. Yeah, I love him. He's awesome. He's awesome. His loyalty and when he comes back. Um, when he goes to start his bookstore, and then he just yeah, yeah. one of Aaron's only uh, only victories over Cal, wasn't it? Oh yeah, because he said he bet that Lee would oh right come back. That that actually that's one of my favorite scenes mm-hmm. when he's trying to get the uh, crud off the cast iron, and then he can't, <laughs> and then here's and then Lee comes in and it picks up, <laughs> yeah, takes right over, mm-hmm. and he says uh, he was lonely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I and wonder. And Lee I, starts to settle in, and he changes the whole house. And what was the sheriff comes in and recognizes that it was a taken over by a false femininity that yeah. Lee mm-hmm. had tried to make it feel like a home. Yeah, that's, that's good. a really sweet. And I don't know. Probably academics hate Lee. I think I read somewhere that a lot of the criticisms of the no- after Kathy Lee was the most hated because he was just the wise. Uh, the term is magical Negro is what they call them. Right. The, the the magical foreign figure that just dispenses wisdom the the black guy that's going to teach you how to play golf and you know lives his life just to make yours better as an empowered white person mm-hmm. um <laughs> but i don't give a rip about that i think lee's a very well-drawn character i think uh, yeah Steinbeck has to kind of jump start his readers to get them into lee so you get a scene that jake made quite a bit of fun of when he first read where samuel and lee are talking and lee's like <laughs> I speak pigeon to a wise... I say really sophisticated things that sound really awkward. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not one of Steinbeck's finer prose moments there. Um, But you... Yeah, yeah. once you get past that that first introduction where he... Yeah, I think jump-starting is the right way to put it. I think in Steinbeck's defense, too, it was a more racist country back then, and maybe he did need to jump-start it for people back then. I don't know. Well, yeah, you could... It's easy to look back and say, oh, well, obviously. Yeah, it was these, these, these 60, sound like 70 such, years ago. This was in the 1952. You know, they, the things that Lee's saying, which sound like platitudes to us because we hear the liberal establishment say them all the time, would have sounded a lot more dramatic and dynamic and real and novel back then. They were, yeah, you had Chinatown for a reason. People expected the Chinese to be a certain way to speak a certain way and for them to suddenly be just a normal American character like Lee turns out to be would have been shocking and disturbing and cause a lot of anger. I mean, the fifties, this was right before, um, you still couldn't marry outside of your own race without it being yeah. a big deal in the I mean, North. You, you think in the fifties when this was published 52, you're still, uh, 
a little bit away from a lot of the civil rights, civil rights revolutions that we're going to Captain occur. Kirk kissed a black woman in the mid 60s and it created yeah. a huge furor yeah. on Star Trek. That's just one random pop culture example of where we were. And so, this is 10, 15 years before that. Right. So, yeah, to have this Chinese character be this sympathetic would have been would have kind of rocked some people's worlds. You a lot of the character a lot of people who would have been reading the the novel would have been these characters who would disregard Lee mm-hmm. pretty easily would just assume that he was a certain character. Mm-hmm. And so Lee says to, you know, to protect himself, which is what happened with Chinatown too, he would take on the role that people expected of him. And I like Lee's dealings with all the casual racists that he comes, you know, people just calling him awful names and stuff, the nurse at the end. And he's got a nice sarcastic way of just kind of dealing with it, of knowing that he's he's better than them in some ways and enjoying it a little bit. Um, it rings true to me. Also, it rings true. I don't think he's supposed to be this Eastern philosopher bringing all the Eastern philosophy to. Yeah, America. he's not a he's not the the magical sort of type. No, I mean, sense. if anything, he is Elisha to, as you said, to he to just takes up the mantle Samuel of Hamilton's. Yeah, he's wise, but you get the sense that that's innate to his character. He's bookish. He likes to learn. He likes to study. I like I like the little touch of him becoming a little more crusty over. Uh, over time. Yeah, I love yeah. I mean it's a nice touch to his character, just him becoming a crusty, lovable I mean, he is in many ways the father figure, um, to Cal, you yeah. know, that Adam couldn't be. And that's why And the mother figure. And the mother figure and the everything. Yeah, and Steinbeck uses him to develop the major philo- philosophical themes of Tim Shull. I don't even think we've talked about that yet, no. have we? Yeah, well I'm kinda okay with not talking about <laughs> yeah. Tim Shull. You can read about it. It's, right. it's central <laughs> it to, to basically it's the – instead of there being it, – it deals with the themes of faith that run throughout the novel. And instead of you being bound to either be good or bad, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. Right? You can choose what you do. You can choose your actions. And that's sort of – it's. I, I was trying to figure out why it shook Samuel so much for him to say that. But it shook Samuel's world. Jake is a – as a pastor, he should tell us all about it. <laughs> let's, let's save that until we run out of time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so all, all I'm is saying is that he, for... he does use Lee to be this philosopher, Eastern philosopher character, but it seems very natural and a part mm-hmm. of Lee's. Well, action. I love, I absolutely love Lee for figuring out everything about strokes or whatever it is. Once he realizes what Adam is sick with, yep. he goes and he becomes such an expert that yep. the doctor you know, is amazed, feels like he could learn a thing or two from this random Chinese guy that is first in a nuisance. And then, so I do, I mean, I think Lee is a lovable character. I, he is the other non-narcissist in the book. I mean, he's willing to just live his life for the Trasks and, and it doesn't feel like a wasted life. And I think that's why it's so moving to me when April loves him at the end, Yeah, that he has a daughter, you know, that He's going to live the rest of his life, you know. Loved. Loved. and They'll take care of him. Mm-hmm. When he gets old and sick, you know, which you think will probably be like another 30 years or something because you don't even know exactly. He is kind of a timeless guru-type character in that sense. Yeah, it's nice that he gets his reward. Um, I think that's why that little scene with Abra, which on the surface of it is just like, I love you, I love you too. It's... It, it does do the Hemingway thing of having, you know, 
the glacier at the top that you see, and there's all this stuff underneath. Uh, anybody want to say anything else about Lee? No. No, I just, you have such respect for his tenacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's just decided at a, at a certain point pretty early on, he just decides he's going to be committed to Adam. He's going to be committed to these boys. He's going to he's going to make them thrive. And he and then he does. He does. And then he I mean one of them was unsavable and that one he doesn't save, but he does his darndest and and he wins with Cal. He wins with Cal. Stop it. The those stop it scenes were so uh so good. Mhm. Make you lovely so much. Yeah, I mean he's so sitting out on the porch and waiting, and he's gonna try to fight. Yeah, and I love and his sense of you know he knows when like when Cal's burning the money, it's just like okay, whatever, burn yeah. the money. You know he's not he's not just always gonna be there with the obnoxious rebuke. You know he's he feels real to me in that sense that he's not always wise. Sometimes he's just a crusty old guy. Sometimes he's just the guy that makes tea, but. When he chooses to say something, you know it's worth saying, and you know that you'd be better off listening to it. And it's also really interesting the moments he just, in wisdom, chooses to let things run their course. Yeah, it's very respectable, and it's maybe it's him building on something that maybe Samuel wouldn't have done actually, or wouldn't have been very good at letting. Yeah. If anything, not that Samuel's bad but samuel is always going to interfere and take responsibility lee knows when to let well enough and alone he's learned that to be quiet and Mm -hmm. you're unattached at times yeah i mean he could say to cal you're gonna regret burning up that money but he might think you know cal needs to burn up that money and learn to regret it later Mm -hmm. yeah maybe it's even cal needs to do something totally stupid and you know what it's not going to be do any good for me to give him a speech about it right now. And if it's not this, it's going to be something else. So, mm-hmm. so that's Lee. He might actually be my favorite character. In some ways, he is my favorite character. In some ways, I like him better than Samuel Hamilton. Simply, I don't know why. It's stupid to compare them, I suppose. But yeah, I feel like it's sort of like trying to decide between Elisha or Elijah. Mm-hmm. You sort of sort of feel. In some ways, Elisha does some more awesome things than Elijah ever did. Right. But the, Elijah's Elijah. Right. <laughs> At the end of the day, they're both pretty awesome. Exactly. Well, I suppose we can't put off uh, Kathy any longer. So let's talk about Kathy. The character, let's just read this. What is, what is, uh, here it is. I found it already. Um, so our narrator, Grandpa John, we asked him to tell us a story about Uncle Cal and <laughs> now, we're about. now we're getting I believe there are monsters born in this world to human parents <laughs> uh, so some are misshapen and horrible with huge heads or tiny bodies <laughs> uh, they are accidents and no one's fault once they were considered the visible punishment for concealed sins and then he says monsters are variations from the accepted norm to a greater or less degree uh, as a child may be born without an arm, so one may be born without kindness or the potential of conscience. Now, I wouldn't consider this to be the final word on Kathy, because he kind of revises. The the narrator himself keeps saying, you know, we never really knew what Kathy yep. wanted, and so we, know, we don't even know whether she got it. I don't yeah, get it. Yeah, I've gone it. back, and I've examined the footnotes of Kathy's life, and 
Yeah, I don't know if we can call her a monster or not. That's what he says. And that we don't know what she if there was something she was afraid of and running from, and we don't know if she got away from it. And so this is his attempt to make sense of Kathy, in a, in a sense. Right. Um, to make sense of all the p- bits and pieces he had heard, all the photos. And or the, really just to show how indecipherable Kathy is yeah. by demonstrating that he, as hard as he's tried, he can't put a finger on it. Yeah. What did you guys think about Kathy? Did you think she was a successful character in the novel? Did you think Steinbeck pulled off whatever it was? And maybe I should ask, what do you think he was trying to achieve? And do you think that he achieved it? I thought I knew what he was trying to achieve and that he was doing it just fine in the first part. Um, she was very believable as a monster. And she did things that I one of it ex- they just seemed shocking to me. When she shoots at him, I was not expecting that. Were you expecting him to shoot? I was not surprised. Yeah, I wasn't so much surprised as it was just... You can see why people actually did say this novel was salacious when you think about the fact she burns her parents to death. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not like a big, gory Stephen King scene or anything, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she takes Charles to bed. Yeah, she is a shocking character. And even though we don't get to see her, you know, bondage club or whatever it is, we know it's something that is awful. And it's actually, it's one of those, what you don't see is more powerful than what you do kind of things where the fact that we're not told exactly what goes on there makes it much scarier. Yeah, I guess to revise, it's not so much shock as it is you can't really believe that she's doing these things. But then you were told that she was a monster. And so, yeah, at the same time, you can believe that she could do these things. Well, what's up if the whole novel is about free will? Why is there this character, I mean, that is, we're explicitly told has no free will? Is she just the Satan figure? Is that is that who she is? Or the Lilith or the Eve, you know, the twisted Eve character? Is, is she just a symbol or does she work on a psychological level? It's hard to say. I mean, certainly she is all of those things. And, you know, the the serpentine imagery is a little over the top even. We talks about her winding and uh, mm. the ways that she would lick her lips and right. Well, then, what were you going to say? You said the first half of the novel you were tracking with her. What happened in the second half of the novel that made you kind of th- she seems, wonder? She seems defeated earlier than I thought she would be, and um, and she starts having doubts and fears. If she's a pure monster, then why is Joe able to get to her? Why is guilt over not guilt, but just fear of exposure over stupid Ethel. Well, she starts uh, she, to fall apart. I think yeah. that part of what she's realizing at the end of, well, what ends up being the end of her life is that she's slipping. She would have done things differently with Ethel if she yeah. were. But it's interesting. Early on you get with Mr. Edwards that she says that she would never lose control like that again. That mm-hmm. The one thing she feared was losing control and a loss of control. And so that's, that is her biggest fear is that she will slip up and miss something and that this world that she's so perfectly put together will no longer be under her rule. But it's an interesting that that fear ends up almost destroying her, maybe it being does, one of the yeah. things that does destroy that you would expect that if she was had started out as a psychologically realistic character, but she starts out as a more sort of satanic. Yeah. Just her parents don't seem that bad, but for whatever, you know, she wasn't beaten or molested or anything, but she's the devil. And then suddenly she's, you almost feel bad for her at the end. I mean, she's, you at least understand that she's in some kind of pain enough to kill herself. Well, she had never lost her confidence until, you know, Charles shook her just a little bit. Samuel shook her. Adam bothered her. And then I think Cal actually ended up shaking her to her core, gave her the idea that they could be somebody out. What's your game? Be somebody out there that could beat me. 
they could be somebody out there weaving a web that's bigger and better than mine and they're going to get me in the end what's going on with ethel what's going on with joe what's going on with all these things which i suppose even if we just say she's satan if she's just a demon if she's just evil incarnate that still makes sense i mean that's how satan probably feels if we can know anything i mean he knows he's condemned he knows mm-hmm. you know the demons beg christ to cast them into the pigs instead of because they know things aren't going to end well for them so maybe the two halves of kathy's in the novel go together better than i thought they did it does seem to me to come a little bit out of nowhere when she's suddenly feeling regrets or fears because she has been outside of slipping up with mr edwards which is understandable what this reminded me of um no i can't believe i'm going to reference this was plato's republic (laughs) with uh, the oh please tell us yeah Dr. Chesty. Uh, the, ty- the tyrant. He, he talks about the different kinds of rulers. And the tyrant's the worst kind of ruler. And w- what happens with, at the end of a tyrant's rule is the complete control they've had to protect themselves begins to crumble. And so they live out their lives in paranoia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Complete, absolute paranoia. And that's how she ends her life, is yep. in this paranoia that Joe's going to get her, Ethel's going to get her. And Joe's a moron. She does, I mean, she, she yeah, used to Joe. chew up and spit people out like Joe. All that she's done Yeah, you get a sense life. that yeah, Joe, Joe is shot, and he's, he's dead. He's gone. He really never had a chance. She destroys Joe just like as a screw you to Joe. She's just yeah. like, ah, I'll destroy You know, even in dying, she's, she's, she can just flick Joe like, you know, we would flick a fly off of us or something. Yeah. She had nothing to fear from Joe, and yet. Yeah, she does end in paranoia. And so that does give her some uh, reality and some depth. And you get the sense that the reason she left Adam in the first place is because she could not believe that anybody could be sympathizing with her at all. She felt that Adam had to have, he was either stupid or he had to have an end game. Mm-hmm. And so she was going to get out of there. And so she had this rule that she lived her life by. And the question is where it came from, because we don't know. Mm-hmm. And at first he says, well, maybe it's she's a monster. But then, like you said, he revises it and says, well, maybe something happened that we just don't know about. Yeah. I've thought a lot about whether it's a failing of the novel that, I mean, if, if Steinbeck just gave her an abusive dad, then we'd all be okay with her character. Then we'd all, we'd all have something to, you know. To sympathize, to understand, to wrap our heads around. Oh, that's why. And what he wants us to do is, is have this conversation and ask the question, is the devil real? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you referenced Plato. The thing I kept thinking of was the Dark Knight, because <laughs> that's our generation's—that's uh, our generation's villain in that mold, I suppose. Um, you know, the character who sort of makes hay with the whole idea of you—you—you want to know how I got these scars? It doesn't matter how I got these scars. I'm just—I'm just crazy. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Kind of—that uh, was an idea that everybody found very intriguing back in 2000 and whatever, when that movie came out. And she's kind of, she's that kind of a character, I don't know. She's marked, mm-hmm. just the way Charles is marked. Interesting that the the final Cain figure is not in marked. telling is not marked, mm-hmm. that Cal's not marked. But, but he is the only one who's worried that he's going to carry on her. Yeah, the others aren't. Yeah, I think what she actually does is she tries to mark Aaron in her final act. Is yeah. Everyone's been marked by money. Adam got this money from Cyrus, this this ill-gotten money, and uh, 
perhaps there's something good in Adam that he ended up just idiotically losing it. I mean, perhaps that speaks well of him because he's 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 sort of just I have the mark of Cain and nope, no, I don't. I I gambled it and I lost it. You have then Kathy gets the money from Charles, so she's she's carrying on this thing, and then she finally passes it to Aaron, and it dies with him. I don't know what actually happens to I'm the sure money. It ends up back. I'm sure you're not supposed to think about the fact that it probably ends up back in Cal's hands. <laughs> right, but I'm sure you're not supposed to think about that. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't have a huge problem with Kathy not having a backstory that defines her. I think it does make her interesting, and it gives you something a little to think about. And I think that there is, you know, if you want to get all philosophical and theological about it, there is a mystery to where evil comes from. It's something that we're not ultimately supposed to know i don't think that god hasn't given us we don't know where the devil came from jake you were talking about this yesterday so i'm I'm borrowing from you so credit where credit is due we don't know and you know when you look at real life stories yeah we know that you know such and such a serial killer was uh was beaten as a child but how many people are beaten as children and don't end up like that you know there is a certain sense in which God hardens Pharaoh's heart or he doesn't. God chooses some vessels for destruction or he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain existential tragedy to the Esau have I hated and Esau having tears that don't lead to repentance. Yeah. And uh, we as Christians, I guess, I don't know, maybe you want to jump in here, Jake, and save me. Maybe I'm, am I messing it up? Mm-hmm. Um, You're doing just fine. Keep going. I mean, I don't think, I think we can have a certain amount of pity for Esau having tears that don't lead to repentance and for Kathy having tears that don't lead to repentance, which mm-hmm. I think she actually does have tears at some point in the book, maybe when Cal sees her. Um, if not, she's at least wrecked by the fact that she missed something, which is a powerful idea. But we can also we can also just bow before God's goodness to us and him choosing some vessels for destruction so that he may be glorified. And that, I guess if you want to get all, get all theological about it, that's who Kathy is. And that does not ring untrue to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yet we still have before us Tim Schull. Tim Schull. Right. That's what I, yeah. We still have before us the choice, and it may it may all be written in heaven, but we live it now. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what Kathy helps bring out is she missed something, but and maybe God ordained that she would miss something. Maybe she was just born missing something, but she was still responsible mm-hmm. to find that thing, and she's still yeah. damned for not finding that thing. And not wanting to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, with the story that Lee tells about Tim Schull, he talks about rejection and how that might be at the basis of all uh, guilt and sin. But then you have, in conjunction with that, you have later on in the novel, Cal being worried that he doesn't know where his meanness comes from. Mm-hmm. He says, sometimes I'm just mean, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think he's honest. He do, it doesn't necessarily come from, from the rejection. He just has it in him to be mean. Yep. And Kathy is the representative of this other aspect where... Steinbeck is showing us that sometimes this cruelty comes from this twisted root that we don't completely understand. We're all looking for excuses, and yeah. that's that. What, the other part of what Lee says. If there were enough excuses in the world, I suppose we'd be, we'd all be fine. Yeah. And uh, we're all looking for ways to excuse our guilt, and yep. and not feeling loved is one of our great excuses, and it's one of Steinbeck's excuses for us that he holds out to us. But the fact is... We're responsible for our sins. We're responsible for our guilt. And we can't pass the blame on to Cain any more than Adam could pass it on to Eve. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so to get back to your point about the Timshul with Kathy, what you see with Cal is he may not have had the capacity to see this color either, but mm-hmm. at least he did have the capacity to care. And he did have the capacity to choose then to live his life in such a way as to make amends for that. And she just completely is unwilling to do that. And so she's consumed by her hatred and her bitterness and her fear. And she eats herself like a serpent. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. I think it's fitting that she destroys herself. That was a weird thing to me the first time that I read the book. I, I expected a much more dramatic end for Kathy Ames, but... She dies alone and afraid. And even Alice. She goes yeah. She goes right on past Alice. She doesn't even get Alice in the end. That's probably the saddest thing for her. And then she just disappears. Um, uh, dialogue mostly sucks. Yeah, and... Uh- I mean, or sometimes it's purple. Steinbeck goes a little purple sometimes, and uh, it's okay. Yeah, I think you you convinced me maybe early on, Nathan, that the fact that we have these beautiful little lines of prose that are almost poetic next to really clunky stuff is just the part of the part of Grandpa telling the story. There you go, and that makes it. I mean. It's fine. It's just the way it is. It's you got to live with Grandpa John, and yep. in order to get the story, and Grandpa John thinks the story is what's important. And sometimes he's poetic, and sometimes he's not. And sometimes all... the thighs of women lose their clutch. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that was the dumbest chapter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, one other question: Who are the three men in that one chapter? The man that loved uh, everyone. Yeah, I'm assuming that the rich one was Rockefeller. Rockefeller yeah. or. Uh, one or, of, Van, or, or uh, one of those Van One of those guys. Van one, of the, one of the robber bears. The one who was famous, almost uh, like an academic, right? Uh, there was the one that everyone rejoiced when he died. They rejoiced I, for two of them dying, right? Yeah. Maybe we can do I think I wrote down what chapter it is. Um, who said it, even? Was it Steinbeck. It, it, yeah, Grandpa John. It was the beginning to ch- book four, wasn't it? Yeah. Huh. I remember clearly the deaths of three men. One was the richest man of the century, um, and then he made up for his evil by giving back. But still nobody. But nobody cared. And they said, thank God that son of a bitch is dead. Right. That would have been Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Carnegie. Carnegie one of and then there was a man smart as Satan, lacking some perception of human dignity and knowing all too well every aspect of human weakness, used his special knowledge to warp men, to buy men, to bribe and threaten and seduce until he found himself in a position of great power. He clothed his motives in the names of virtue— and I have wondered whether he ever knew that no gift will ever buy back a man's love when you have removed his self-love. A bribed man can only hate his briber. When this man died, the nation rang with praise and just beneath with gladness that he was dead. I assumed it was Wilson or one maybe, of the presidents. I yeah, did some research, F- and F- I think F- I know who it is. So I don't want to pretend like I came up with this by myself, but it, it makes sense given who I know. Is it Roosevelt? No. Roosevelt might be the last one, actually. Yeah. Um, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper baron. Oh, yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. He was a despicable man in many ways. Interesting. Just watch Citizen Kane if you want to find out more about him. That's right. Yeah, he's... Um, okay, that makes sense. I guess yeah. people have put a lot of thought into this. Well, he was people that – Hearst fits the bill in that he's not Hitler. He's somebody that everyone did love and respect. He was a powerful man in America that – was supposed to be respectable, but he destroyed people with his paper. And I see. I was imagining it would be somebody like Wilson, who was a powerful man who sent, you know, soldiers to their death, yeah. death or something like that. And the last one would be FDR. That's what the thing I read said, which yeah. sounds good. Read I'm the not... description of the last one again. 
There was a third man who perhaps made many errors in performance, but whose effective life was devoted to making men brave and dignified and good in a time when they were poor and frightened and when ugly forces were loose in the world to utilize their fears. This man was hated by the few. When he died, the people burst into tears in the streets and their minds wailed. What can we do now? How can we go on without him? FDR, yeah. Churchill, yeah, I'm not, maybe. I'm not a progressive liberal, so I don't really like FDR that yeah. much, but it sounds like that's what it's he's talking F- about. Yeah. FDR. I mean, Steinbeck in many ways was a progressive liberal. Right. He was he devoted, he devoted his life to the plight of the poor. Given Lee. Which, and, you know, yeah, given Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. I like this book a lot better than Grapes of Wrath. By oh, I the do way. too. Yep. Maybe it's just because the themes are it. the themes are more universal. I've not read of Mice of Men Men. I know that's supposed to be a real turdjerker, but I know the ending just through cultural osmosis, which makes me a little sad. You know the characters from Bugs Bunny cartoons, right. Lenny, and, out loud. Yeah. Lenny and uh, George. All right, so I love East of Eden. Sounds like you guys liked East of Eden too. The first time I read the final scene was the first time that a book ever made me cry and mm-hmm. I cried for about a half an hour and I hadn't cried before that for about a decade like about anything mm-hmm. um, because I had a lot of uh, family drama and stuff and I'd kind of gone into myself and looked at the world through tunnels and this book is special to me because it was I'm not I don't know it was part of God uh, bringing me out of that and I'm not saying the book is godly in every way, but it's just something that he happened to use in my life. Um, well, one of the one of the things that Steinbeck forces you to do, one of the things that he does is he takes sin seriously enough to admit that it's real and admit that we all carry guilt and force us to look it in the face mm-hmm. and deal with our dads and our moms and our and everything else. And I think he gives us an ending that, you know, it's humanistic. It's existential. It doesn't exactly work as as much as I, I would like it to be, which me and Jake discussed this off mic, as much as I'd like it to just be the gospel. It's not. It's not quite. But it does give you a beautiful little picture of having the freedom to make the choice for good. It's redemptive. Of, of, mm-hmm. of, of not being destroyed by your father's sins. And um, that was a powerful thing for me when I first read the book. Uh, and I think it's a good and powerful thing for other people to read the book for. I, I, uh, yeah, I cried for when I one up you here. I think it was about forty-five minutes <laughs> yesterday. <Wow. laughs> How long did you cry for? for <laughs> I didn't cry for that long. Sorry, guys, but it was, hey, it I'm was, heartless. <laughs> it was often. I mean, I had my moments of composure, and it took about forty-five minutes. I think. I, I cried for 45 minutes this time, actually. And so I, you have accumulated... I accumulated crying <laughs> of 75 minutes. You got me beat. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I actually cried, and I said a prayer for my dad, and I sent an email to a father figure in my life that said, I love you. And he probably <laughs> thought I was drunk, but I hadn't had a drop. Because, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It didn't keep me up. Mm. Late thinking and... Just turning over the events that, of my own past, my own relation to my children, mm-hmm. my ability to forgive or not to forgive, and how bitterness can take root. And there's a lot there with Adam, just his raising his hand. Mm-hmm. That's just completely released. And then you realize his ability to do that. And then he gets the gift of being able to sleep. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
Yeah. What the? It's just in the whole narratively, it's it's wonderful. Just the pacing of it. Just this, there's a speed to it and an urgency that builds, and mm-hmm. it's a it's an appropriate release to the novel. That's the other thing I and, remember um, being in real suspense, and it's what's such a weird thing. Usually, you think of suspense as being like, will they will they die or not? But I was in suspense as to whether Adam was going to be able to give Cal his blessing or not, and I was yeah. waiting to see. And I knew Steinbeck was probably going to give me a happy ending, but there was enough doubt in my mind that it paid off. Yep. In a big way, obviously, for me. Yeah, and it was, it good. was yeah. really good that Adam was the one that gave Cal the freedom. I, I had assumed that Cal would find it, that mm. Tim Schull would be the last word of the book or whatever, and but I, I just wasn't quite sure how it was coming, and I was really trying hard not to, to think about it because what I always do with books is I arm myself by deconstructing plot so as to... <laughs> protect myself you know from me and jake laid out the entire star wars movie down to the thing that happens to han solo and who does it and, and when how and it how. happens yeah. before you saw before yeah. we saw the movie we wow. knew that the lightsaber would be off and then the lightsaber would be turned on and it would shoot through we knew that we the did. droid would have a plot element that everybody wanted we figured out the whole thing wow um and it was it, guys it made the Star Wars movie slightly less the next fun. Star Wars movie. Yeah, we're not going to do, not gonna it, do it, it for the next, next one. <laughs> yeah, we already agreed after we saw it. Well, it was just and Jake was trying to not do it for East of Eden. The, I, I, I had to keep. You may, you may not be able to do it for Dostoevsky. <laughs> I will say that <laughs> I've read the first chunk of the Idiot, and I have no idea where it's going. All right, so I love East of Eden. Yeah, yeah it's great. Anything else you want to say about it? I think everything's been said that should act as a closing thought for me. It's uh, it'll help you process a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, You've got daddy issues or brother issues or uh, sin issues. Any of you out there are sinners? I don't know if any sinners listen to this podcast, but uh, I guess if you're a homeschooler, you're probably not a sinner. But. We we already alienated all of those. Oh, oh homeschoolers are already gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> this is the kind of novel where if you aren't moved by the ending, you should probably be worried that you might be Aaron. <laughs> Or Kathy. Today's episode of The Bookening was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastine, and Jacob Menzel. If you want more awesome content like this, go to warhornmedia.com. There's articles, there's music, there's more episodes of this amazing podcast, and just all kinds of cool stuff at warhornmedia.com. Cool stuff by me and my friends and work acquaintances. 